0: Well, I want to read to you the passage, um, which Jeremy's going to be preaching from, which you will find on page 1479. It's Mark chapter 5, page 1479. Speaking of Jesus and his disciples, it begins with the word they. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, And drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Jeremy, would you come up? Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for this man and the passion you put in his heart to glorify Jesus with his life. And I ask, Lord, that as he speaks your word to us today, that there would be a power upon him, a mighty power, to speak with authority, to speak freedom and hope, and to communicate the reality of your Son to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.
1: Yeah, so... um Good morning. Now, today we're continuing our series on. This is the third week of looking at this mini series, third and final week, looking at Jesus' power over all things. First week, we looked at Jesus' power over nature. Jesus um, dramatically, miraculously calmed the storm as he and the disciples were in a boat um, in the middle of the Lake of Galilee. That's just preceding the story we're about to look at. Uh, then, just after this story, uh, we saw last week, we saw Jesus' power over sickness and death in Jesus' encounter with the bleeding woman and the daughter of Jairus. And today, um, we're kind of completing that series, looking at Jesus' power over evil and sin. Now, on the face of it, well, the story this morning is quite a simple story. Jesus um, goes and uh, encounters a man who um, is in deep distress and anguish. And as he encounters him, he um, casts out the unclean spirit, the evil spirit from this man. As he does that, we see that the man is utterly transformed. And then Jesus sends him on his way to go and tell people uh, what he has done for him. Now, that that feels quite a simple and profound story of um, transformation. But actually, I suppose as we look at that story, perhaps it doesn't feel that relevant to us. I mean, after all, we don't know that many people who feel like they've been demon-possessed. We don't really talk about evil spirits much in our, in our lives, um, apart from maybe the cult or Ouija boards. This is a quite unfamiliar concept to us. But actually, I would argue that this man's story is more relevant to us than we realise. Actually, this story really is a story which obviously is a, a story of the transformation of this man's life. But actually, I think there are two real pictures um, in this story, And behind those two pictures, two truths um, that I want to persuade you of this morning. The first picture is the man himself. I think this man himself is a picture of a life which is dominated and ruled by evil and sin. And actually, he, he serves as almost like a cautionary tale for us of what it looks like to allow Satan to reign in your life. Now, I'm not saying if you're not a Christian uh, that this is what your life looks like. He's like an extreme picture. But I think there are threads from which we can draw out from this man's um, condition before Jesus meets him that apply to our lives and actually show us the character and nature of evil and sin. And actually, I would go further than that and say that we can see from this man's life that evil and sin are the greatest danger to, our li- um, to, to living a fulfilled and satisfied life. The, 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 thing, these, the things that this man is battling with are the greatest danger for us to live a fulfilled and satisfied and full life that I believe Jesus is calling us all to, to live. The second uh, picture in this story, which um, is the transformation that Jesus puts into this man's life, the way that uh, this man is saved and set free from evil and sin. Actually, I think that's a picture of the wider story. The wider narrative that actually Jesus has destroyed the power of evil and sin, ultimately on the cross, but actually, and that, and that means for our lives as Christians, that Jesus has destroyed the power of evil and sin in our lives. So there are two truths in this story one, that evil and sin are truly dangerous for our lives, um, the greatest danger I think we face, and the second truth, that Jesus has brought complete freedom from evil and sin. And we'll see those two truths in this story and we'll unpack the implications of those truths for us as we do that. Now, before we look at this story, there'll be some who hear this story and think, this is uh, remarkable. In fact, this is unbelievable. And actually, maybe I can't, maybe you would say, I can't really believe that Christians believe this this is true. Like, um... How can Christians believe in demons and Satan and devil? And isn't that all part of a kind of cartoon that's made up or caricature to kind of scare people? It's it's not real, surely. I would say that criticism comes from what I would describe as a materialist worldview, a purely materialist worldview. And I think actually this is the kind of soup that we live in. This This is the culture that we come from, a materialist culture, which says essentially, unless I can see it, touch it, taste it, Or smell it? Is that all five senses? Unless I can sensorily experience it, I can't know its truth. And so I guess I would argue, I would kind of want to challenge that perspective. First thing I would say is that um, the materialist worldview, the idea that you can only know things by seeing, touching, tasting, feeling or smelling them, cannot actually um, be proved by itself, if that makes sense. That actually it is ultimately an assumption. It's a presupposition, so to speak, that actually to, to say that there's no way we can know truth except by experiencing it through our senses is, is not something we can actually know for sure, so to speak. So the first thing I want to say is actually that's an assumption you're, you're walking with. It's not something that is kind of preordained, so, so to speak. The second thing I would say is materialism ignores some of the kind of true richest parts of life that, um, that, we, that actually are part of the human experience. Take love, for example. On a purely materialist basis, you might say, well, you know, um, the chemical reactions inside my br- uh, body and the, and, the, and the nerve endings and the, sy- uh, I'm not a biologist, but you know what I mean, <laughs> the, 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 uh, the sensory experience between the synapse and my brain is making me feel some kind of affection um, towards my wife. And, and for some of us, we would look at that and say, actually, love is more than just that. It's not just the biological impulses inside you. Love is, is something intangible, that there's more to life than just the kind of biological or physical impulses that, um, that make up the what can be discerned scientifically, so to speak. And actually, there are whole sorts of questions like, why do people have dignity? Why do people have value? Why, um, what is good and evil? What, you know, why should we have friendship? There are, there are whole sorts of questions that I don't think are covered and answered from a purely materialist worldview. The third thing I would say to that challenge is, I believe in demons, I believe in Satan because I believe in Jesus. And because um, I would simply say the, question, the first question you have to answer is, who is this man? Is he um, this man who walked around claiming to be God? Is he a bad man, an evil man who knew that he wasn't God but went around claiming that he was God? Is he a madman who was utterly deceived, who, who saw himself as God but actually was, was just a man like you and me and actually fundamentally uh, like, was mad? Or, or, um, or is he actually who he says he is? Is he God? And if he is who he says he is, as, I, as my conclusion after reading the Gospels, that he is who he said he is, that he is um, God in the flesh, then actually that means he has permission to re, rework everything. He has permission to, to, re, to challenge every, everything I previously believed about the world, everything I said, this isn't true and this is true. Actually, because he's God, I kind of come to him and say, okay, God, tell me what, what, what about the world? Tell me how the world works. And so he and it's clear from the Gospels, in fact, from the story we're looking at today, that Jesus treats uh, the demonic and Satan as a reality and as a follower of him. So I, I, I must do the same. So that's why I think, I think we're going to park that there. And let's, let's then look at the story. Um, let's look at this demon-possessed man and try and unpack something of what sin and evil are um, from this man's experience. Now, this man is an extreme picture where evil is reigning, where he's, he's described as demon-possessed, and he's, he's ultimately being tortured by, by Satan and these evil spirits. And the first thing I, want, I think that's clear about this man is that he's been robbed of many things that, that I would say are very important to life, that Satan and these demons are robbing him of the, of the kind of rich and satisfying life that we all um, can experience in Jesus. First, we can see he's got no peace. Um, he's crying out day and night. He's experiencing unceasing anguish. He's got no peace. He's, he's uh, restless. He's uh, night and day among the tombs. He, uh, sorry, um, And on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. He's got no peace. He's got no relationships. He's isolated. He's, he's, uh, he's had to be locked up, or people have tried to lock him up, but he's broken the chains that bound him. But he's been locked up among the tombs. So he's not, he's, his only company is, is dead bodies and, and, uh, and skeletons. He's, uh, he's in this unclean place, presumably for his own safety and for the safety of others. So he's isolated. He's not experiencing a relationship and community, something which we know is kind of a central part of life. And thirdly, I think he's got no dignity. I think he's experiencing the shame of, of, this, um, of the kind of the torment that he's experiencing. He's probably naked because later on, when we hear the description of him um, after Jesus has sent the t- uh, demonic spirits out, he uh, it said, describes them as clothed. So you can kind of imagine this naked man who's on his own, isolated from others, um, being tried to be bound up, and, and destroying the image of God, cutting himself with these stones. I think he almost goes far to say he kind of hates himself almost. I think evil has robbed him of the good things in life. And this man is experiencing the emptiness of a life um, possessed and controlled by evil. You know, this, this, uh, when, I, when I read this story, it reminds me of um, a verse in John chapter 10 that Jesus... Um, describes the kind of contrast. He says, "Uh, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And I think Satan has stolen, has robbed from this man um, these things, these these things like peace, community, relationships, and dignity. These things that are God-given gifts for us. Actually, I would argue that sin does the same thing in our lives. It promises satisfaction but actually, it robs us from our joy and freedom. Sin ultimately fails to deliver on its promises. Let me give you two examples. Say it's a Friday night, you're out clubbing, and um, and you someone someone looks at you across the dance floor. As they uh, <laughs> Dan's laughing, this experience happened to him many times. Uh, ho- hopefully not. Hopefully not where the rest of the story goes. Um, <laughs> so and it's um, and the person's looking, and, and, and immediately as they look at you, you, feel yes. Like, I'm wanted. Like you might not say that to yourself, but, it, but inside that that's what is making you feel good when at that moment, and and you know that you know that having sex outside of marriage is not something that God's best for you. But but you kind of as the person keeps looking at you, it kind of just keeps resonating inside you, and eventually you 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 just give in. You go in and you say yeah, I'm gonna and you whatever you go and spend the night with that person, and uh and the next morning as you as you leave their house, I would suggest that that you experience probably some shame, probably no peace, probably uh, a lack of dignity, and certainly no love. Now, you might argue I'm painting an unnecessarily dramatic picture, and, um, but I would argue that's just a small picture of the, of the ultimate unfulfillingness of sin, that sin promises everything. That night, as you were dancing away, you thought, this is, this is, this is going to give me reward. And the next morning, it felt like nothing. And that is a picture of sin. Take a more, kind of maybe a more uh, appropriate example, one that you might actually experience. Um, and that is, say you say, you know, subtly you say to yourself, I don't want to uh, live for God's glory. I want to uh, make a name for myself. So you pre- this might happen subtly, this might happen kind of even subconsciously, but as you go about your daily work, you start wanting to make a name for yourself. You start saying, I'm going to be the best, I'm going to make something of myself, I'm going to achieve a certain level and it's going to be about my success at work. And so you plough yourself into your career, you maybe stop seeing people, you stop seeing your family, you're always thinking about work, work's kind of taking over your psyche, maybe even you end up compromising your ethics because you say, well, ultimately, this is worth it because I want to get to the top. Um... And actually, when you get there, when you make that promotion, when you get made managing director, whatever it is, you realise that you've sacrificed your relationships, you've sacrificed your ethics, you've even sacrificed your peace to get to the top. And actually, you realise that 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 place which you were chasing after is not what it promised. This is a picture of how sin is more dangerous than we realise, and it doesn't fulfil its promises. I think sin is often portrayed in our culture as, as just a bit of naughty fun. It's just another little kind of cheeky thing. Um, An extra slice of cake, a double chocolate ice cream. You know, Weight Watchers even has, like, you know, you can have a certain number of sins this month. So sin has kind of been trivialised in our culture. Sin is um, kind of associated with just being a bit naughty rather than actually something that's fundamentally um, evil. Actually, we say at the centre of this story, we see that sin is is both a rejection of God and ultimately an embrace of, of evil, of Satan. And the Bible suggests there are essentially two ways to live, actually, that ultimately you can follow Jesus... Or in some way, if you're not following Jesus, actually, you're following the prince of the air, you're following Satan. Uh, Let me me look at um, Ephesians chapter two, verse one to three. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So this is describing, uh, speaking to Christians here, but he's saying, actually, this is what your condition was before you were a Christian. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What this says is actually, if you're not following Jesus, you're following, it describes him as the prince of the power of the air. I believe that's a reference to Satan. And actually, um, it describes the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What it's saying is, actually, if you're, if, you're following Je- if you're not following Jesus, if you're saying, actually, your fundamental orientation is away from God. Saying, actually, I don't want to obey you. I don't want to follow you. And actually, in doing so, actually, maybe may kind of hard to believe, so to speak, but actually, you're following Satan. And, I, and you might say, um, well, I, I'm not a Christian, but I'm not embracing evil. Actually, I try to live my life in a good way. I try to be good to other people. And there's no way that, that actually, if I'm not following Jesus, that somehow I'm following this kind of uh, force of evil. Actually, I would say, firstly, that Satan is simply the enemy of God. He seeks to draw people away from God. That's his kind of, I, I believe is almost his, not his raison d'etre, because that wasn't what he was created for, but that's his kind of chosen raison d'etre, to draw people away from God and to be—and he's the enemy of God, the disobedient one. And so actually, if you're not following God, you are walking in that way. You are walking, and if you're saying, I don't want to follow you, God, I want to tr- tr- follow my own path, I want to um, have my own will, that's what you're doing. Now, this doesn't mean that you're not experiencing good things, that you're not experiencing love, that you're not um, experiencing the gifts that God's given us to enjoy in this world, whether or not you're um, a follower of Jesus. You might be experiencing relationships and community. You might be experiencing satisfaction in your work. You might be experiencing love, even expressing sacrificial love for other people. I think these are all good things, actually, which are gifts from God. But it doesn't negate the possibility that if you're not following Jesus, actually, in some way, you're following this, uh, this path of evil, so to speak. And the reason I think this is relevant is because this man is a picture of the destruction that Satan wants to bring in your life. This man kind of shows that evil is not like a kind of nice uh, caricature, so to speak, which is kind of a bit fun, or it's actually something really dangerous. And um, I've, I've got a uh, friend who's a really good uh, kind of prophetic songwriter, uh, kind of like a modern-day prophet is how he describes himself, and he, it's this wonderful song where the line is, the darkness doesn't love you, baby, come out while you can. I think that kind of encapsulates what I'm trying to say here, that he's saying, actually, in some ways, this evil doesn't want its best for you. Sin doesn't, doesn't, doesn't want good for you. Actually, the only person who really wants good for you, the only one who's, who's good and the right one to be an authority in your life is Jesus. So we see the, the, the pain of sin in this man. We see the pain of a life dominated by sin and evil. But I also think we see the powerlessness of a life dominated by evil. This man is out of control. He can't be tamed. They've tried locking him up, but he's broken the chains that bound him. The demonic is controlling him. He's not in control of his life, so to speak. Actually, I think that's the same with us and sin. Sin appears like it's, stu- um, like it's something that we can control. You know, We can kind of do a little bit and, and then, and then uh, kind of go back to our lives. But actually, I don't think that happens. I think actually it, it ends up controlling us. Think about, I, I work in old, near Aldgate East, um, and near my office, as I sometimes walk around the office, my, my colleagues kind of chewing the fat and thinking about things. I, I'm a lot, recently, as I was walking around the office, I saw three, guy, uh, three individuals who are all in the throes of serious drug addiction. You know, like, like one person like, shooting up behind an umbrella, another couple like, in, an, uh, in an alleyway. Like, utterly, their lives are utterly destroyed by these drugs. And I'm sure that that journey with drugs didn't start with them expecting that. It didn't start with them going, you know what, I'm going to end up in an alleyway uh, shooting up and, that, and, that's gonna, and I'm going to kind of destroy my life, probably destroy my relationships, probably destroy everything that is kind of good and, and about this life. It started them probably just saying, I'm just going to try this and have some fun. But actually, it grips you and controls you and, and it just ultimately ends up destroying all the good things about life. Think about pornography. You might say, well, I'll just look at that, you know, just look on that, person's profile page it's, it's a bit innocent and then maybe you start okay i'll just start looking at you know just oh that game of thrones that's kind of a you know it's okay it's, you know it's a bit bit dodged but it's okay and then actually i'm not suggesting that it was another discussion um <laughs> but but ultimately um those carry on the journey a little bit further actually it's something that many people would say it becomes a kind of life controlling um maybe the word addiction even Actually, that sin has a power to suck us in and almost to the point where we kind of feel completely powerless to its control. And that's the present experience of so many people in our city. Well, think about money, I think, is the third one that I think is quite. By the way, some of these things, like, you know, sex and probably drugs, but there are other, they're, they're not necessarily, sin isn't necessarily like using some things totally. Like, we're not, it's the, it's the abuse of, of, of a gift from God um, in a way. Um, but to take money for example. Well, money is a really good uh, thing in life, and it is, and we can use it for lots of different purposes, for God's purposes. But actually, even something like a desire for money can end up controlling someone. You can start by saying, "I'm just going to have enough. I've just got to, you know, get my financial situation in the right. I've just got to. You know, I'm just going to save up. I'll just stop giving to church for a few months, and just, you know, and, and actually, that even that desire for money can start to grip you. And I think of that a guy um, called I don't know his first name, but Rockefeller. Rockefeller was one of the richest man men in America, and they said, "How much money is enough?" And do you know what he said? Just one more dollar. (laughs) Like the point is that even when you could get, and you know, you see it all the time in this city, people have got loads of money, more than they would ever need. But of course, the desire to keep earning more, the desire to keep accruing wealth, doesn't stop in your life. That actually, these sins can end up controlling us. And so this man, I think, is, is helpless, I would say, helpless to control, change his situation. And obviously his situation feels deeply hopeless as well. It's probably his family or whoever has tried to control him for his own sake, but they failed. Actually, I think we too, in the face of sin, are helpless to break free from, our, from sin without Jesus. Think about that. You might say, well, I'm, say you've uh, a tendency to get angry. Actually, I was reading something, I think it was by um, Darren Brown, he was saying, actually, we all know, kind of really, that anger never helps us persuade other people. So, you know, say you're someone who who gets angry, um, actually, you realise when you do get angry with people, that doesn't actually help you persuade people of what you're trying to persuade them of, if that makes sense. So, actually, even though you know it doesn't help, you end up getting angry anyway. I think there are loads of examples of that in our lives where we resolve not to do something. We resolve that we're not going uh, to behave a certain way, but actually we end up doing it anyway. I'm, I'm not going argue, to argue with my partner. I'm going I'm to be nice to them this evening. And then, of course, something happens, and, and that's not the case. And, we, and so I think that probably creates two twin impulses in our culture. One is that we have a real desire to change. Just look at the, the birth, the explosion of the self-improvement industry in this city, and you can see quite clearly there's a dissatisfaction with ourselves. That there's something we say, look, I, I know I, I need to change. I need to get rid of these bad habits. There's books, blogs, etc. All about you know, getting over some bad habits or wrong thinking. But actually, we also recognise how bad we are at changing. So you think about all the times when you're coming up to a New Year's resolu- New Year's time, and you think, "Ah, forget it! I'm not going to uh, put a New Year's resolution because I know I'll break it three days later." So we're in this messy situation where we kind of know that we want to change, and yet we know that we're almost powerless to change. And I think if we look inside ourselves, we'll see lots of desires, lusts, fears, which we don't want. We'll see we'll actually recognise that actually inside we're probably a little bit more like this. Um, more like this man than we realise. Uh, C.S. Lewis, um, who was an academic, obviously wrote the Narnia books. He was an atheist who became a Christian in later life. Um, this is, he wrote this about his uh, experience just before he became a Christian. He said, For the first time, I examined myself with a practical purpose. There I found what appalled me, a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. So even if, you would say, even if we would say, and I would agree with you, that we wouldn't say our lives look like the extreme situation that this man is experiencing, I think we see how sin robs us of a full and satisfying life. We see how sin controls us, whether it be selfish ambition, lust, love of money, these things end up controlling us, and we recognise we're helpless to change without Jesus. Ultimately, we're in the same desperate situation, both as this man and as uh, Paul, when he writes in Romans chapter 7, what a wretched man I am, who will, rid me of, who will rid me of this body of death? And of course, the answer, thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Before we go on to unpack that, I think this is really important to recognise. If you're not a Christian here, sometimes it's easy to think of Christians as basically people who want to be good or, or um, you know, people who are innately good. They're, they're, they're nice people, you know? you're a Christian, you're, you're a nice person. Um, but actually, what defines a Christian is basically someone who recognises that they need a saviour. Recognize that, and, a, and, a, and a recognition that, of course, that Jesus is that saviour. But actually, it's, it's not that they're necessarily better than other people. It's just they recognise their need for him. So we see, actually, we see this same desperation in the demon-possessed man. When he comes running to Jesus, I thought, I really liked the voices that Andrew did. Um, when he comes running to Jesus and he said, and when he saw Jesus from afar, afar he ran and fell down before him. And he says, Um, And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. You can see the desperation. You can hear the desperation in his voice. And uh, actually, Jesus is here to free him from this demonic oppression. And Jesus is here to bring freedom for us for sin too. So you can see that Jesus, first of all, Jesus casts out the demon. In verse 8, Jesus speaks to the demon and instructs him to come out of the man. Actually, you see the demon's response in verse seven, I believe, because um, it says, for um, um, for he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So it kind of gives you his, the response of the man uh, before what Jesus said to him. Um, but you can see in the demon's response that he's afraid. He's saying, what have you to do with me? He's pleading with Jesus, do not torment me. And he recognises uh, his authority. He says, calls him the son of the most high God. And in verse 13, after a little bit of, of dialogue between Jesus and the demons yeah, who are possessing this man, he allows the demons to enter a herd of pigs. So he frees the man from these demons. What's interesting here, and I think it's easy to miss, is the transformation that this brings in the man's life. The man goes from being naked to clothed, be out of his mind, crazy, to being in the right mind. He goes from uh, anguish, unceasing anguish, complete lack of peace, to calmly sitting there with the, with the disciples and with Jesus. So I think we see a total transformation from disorder to order, from uh, like destruction to wholeness and, 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 and healing. What is the response? I think partly you can see the dramatic change in this man by the response of the people around him. The response of the people, first of all, is actually fear. They're afraid. They're asking, what power would do this? How could you change a man like this? This is the man who's probably got legendary status. People have probably trying to lock him up for years, trying to control him. Maybe he's well-known. Oh, that was that crazy man who that family had to leave by the tombs because he was such a danger to the community. And it's, it's probably kind of a, they've been tearing their hair out, so to speak, with this man. And Jesus, in one moment, has utterly transformed him. He's done what no one could do before him. And actually, even when people, he goes on, you know, the, the, the demon-possessed man then goes on to uh, back to these uh, where he's come from, goes and tells his friends, goes to the Decapolis, the ten cities, and tells them the story of what's happened. And the response is people are staggered. It says, everyone marveled. So the transformation here is tremendous. Both we can see it with our own eyes, in the man's um, character, but also we can see it in the response from the people around him. And I think we can also see it, uh, just for a moment, in the whole um, kind of idea of legion. Actually, you can see the the, the demons describe themselves kind of speaking through the man, and they say, we are legion. Most commentators um, expect this, say, we are legion, I am legion, one of the two, my name is legion. Okay, um, And most commentators kind of re- think this is a reference to the kind of idea of a Roman legion. Uh, a thousand, you know, Roman legion has 6,000 soldiers. I'm not saying there are 6,000 demons here, but it gives you a sense that this is a, not just, I suppose, one demon tormenting this man, but a horde of demons tormenting this man. This is a tremendous evil destroying this man's life. And you can also see that in the way that when Jesus sends them out, they go into this herd of 2,000 pigs, and um, those pigs are also destroyed. This is a kind of significance, really, of Jesus' power and authority, that he's not got, just got, I suppose, power over kind of a small amount of evil, but he's got power over this tremendous evil that was destroying this man's life. And really, it just goes to remind us of the whole theme of these three weeks is that nothing is beyond Jesus' power and authority. Even the wind and the waves obey him. That was the response of the disciples after the first week. We saw he's got power over life and death, over a woman who's been bleeding for many years, and now we see that he's got power over profound evil and sin. Mark wants you to know, wants you to see in these three stories, really one central conclusion, that this is not just an ordinary man, but this is God, God in the flesh. And that's what, you should, what we should see as we see Jesus in these stories. But at the centre of this transformation that we see in this man's life is one thing, that is Freedom. This man is no longer uh, dominated or controlled by Satan and his demons. Actually, he's been freed from their destructive power. He's now free to enjoy a rich and satisfying life. He's, he's free now, for example, even to enjoy community for the first time. He can be around other people, presumably without destroying them. Um, he can, he's, they find the, the villagers, when they come back, they find him sitting there and, with the disciples. He's enjoying fellowship and friendship for the first time, maybe in, in, in years, maybe if not his whole life. He's um, free to be obedient to God. Actually, Jesus, uh, he asked Jesus to go with him, but Jesus tells him, no, go to the Decapolis, and he's obedient. He's now free to worship and obey Jesus. He's freed from his slavery to evil, and he's free to be the person that he was made to be. And just as this man is is, uh, served as a picture of the the kind of tyranny of sin, of the destructive power of sin in our lives, he also shows us a picture of what it means to be freed from the power of sin in our lives. The freedom from sin that we experience in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus. Jesus destroyed the power of evil and sin in this man's life, and it's not just this man. In the wider story, Jesus um, brought freedom from sin for all of us and destroy the power of evil and sin in our lives. It's so easy to forget this. As Christians, you know, we're not immune to the same temptations and desires as, as uh, the whole world around us. And actually, so we're, we often find ourselves living lives where it feels like sin is dominating, where it feels like we're going back to the same patterns of sin, uh, maybe as we were before we were following Jesus, or feel unable to break free from those patterns. Feel like, re- like we're returning to our sin, like dog returns to its vomit at one point, how the Bible describes it. And that's how it feels to us. It feels like shameful. It feels like we failed again. And it, it just feels like so powerful in our lives. But it makes such a difference to that fight. It makes such a difference to the battle against sin, the desire to order your life around Jesus and to be obedient, live a life obedient to him to know that Jesus has already won the battle against sin. Jesus has already defeated sin and evil on the cross. In um, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, it describes Jesus as disarming the rulers and authorities. Now, some, obviously, part of that, people would say that's talking about the, the kind of secular rulers and authorities, the people who put Jesus um, on the cross. But it's not just talking about that. Actually, most commentators accept that, that he's talking about um, the demonic rulers, so to speak, of this world. The Satan is dominion, who has some kind of level of dominion in this world. And he says he's put them to open shame. Actually, on the cross, Jesus destroys, uh, defeats the power of sin and death. But this defeat is a little bit like D-Day and V-E Day. Now, if you remember back to World War Two. Some people use the analogy, which I think is really helpful, of when at the moment of D Day, when when the Allies won the um, one D Day, as in like that was successful, they launched, and there was now an army kind of on their way to Berlin. um, People would say, actually, the war was already won at that point. You know, it was already a sense to which we knew that the war was over, it would be over because the Allies had won D Day. Now, VE Day was coming. They knew that one day there would be total victory, but actually there was a sense to which they'd already won. And I think that's, that's the, what it looks like, what the defeat, Jesus' defeat of evil and sin on the cross looks like in the lives of believers today. We know that one day, sin and evil are gone, going to be gone from the world. Jesus is going to come back and judge the living and the dead, and there's going to be no sin, no evil, no suffering, no, she- uh, no crying, that we look forward to this heavenly tr- place where we're going to be with Jesus for eternity. And I don't think We know that we know sin and evil there. So we know that sin and evil are on its way out and actually they've been defeated um, today in our lives and we can take hold of that power, that freedom from sin that Jesus brought us in our lives. Which is why um, Paul tells us in Romans chapter six that we've been set free from sin. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching from which you were committed and having been set free, Free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Your identity, if you're a follower of Jesus, is you're no longer a slave to sin. You've been set free to obey God. And this is the truth for our souls when we feel defeated. This is the this is the uh, the truth that should salve our consciences when we feel um, trapped in sin, when we feel like there's no way out of this. When I'm just I'm just I know when I get home I'm going to look at pornography this evening, even though I don't want to. Actually, this is the truth, and only gives us that, that hope that that will be different, but it also gives us the power and the promise that we can break free of these sinful patterns today. He and his power is the hope for change, the hope for victory over sin in your life. Now, that's not to say we won't sin. We're still in the middle of D-Day and V-E-Day, that there's still uh, the flesh in our lives that hasn't, that hasn't gone. We're still in some way experienced temptation. Um, but even though sin doesn't have the same power in our lives, uh, sorry, yes, even though we do have sin in our own lives, it doesn't have the same power in our lives. Um, you know, we know our hearts are idol factories. We know that as that we get rid of one thing, we stop bowing down to one thing, we say, I'm not going to live for other people's approval, I'm going to live for your approval, God. Actually, the next week, we're going to find something else to worship, which isn't Jesus. We know that, we kind of feel almost like inevitability there. But I do think we have a new power to put to death the flesh and to say no to temptation. And this power is rooted really in the person of the Holy Spirit who has made his home in you if you're a follower of Christ. So we can agree with 2 Peter when he says his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. The power of the Spirit, God himself at work in our lives is enough to give us freedom from sin. Actually, I I tend to think as Christians we probably underestimate the extent to which we have that freedom. I'm not saying that we, don't, we won't sin, but I, if we have to kind of assume one way or the other, I think most Christians tend to under-realise the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit to um, break and destroy sin in your life. And the problem is, that's just the most powerful lie of the enemy, isn't it? When he says to you, oh, you're basically, you're, you're, a, filthy, you know, you're a sinner, you're, you're a filthy sinner, you're going to keep doing this. Yeah, and you go, okay, yeah, I am, that's what, that's what I'm doing. Actually, the, the much more powerful, this speaks right to our identity, it says, actually, you're not a slave to sin anymore. You're a child of God. And so it's not just that there's just a power in your life, but there's also a new identity. We're not slaves to sin. We're slaves to righteousness. And, we are, and that's why we can say we're a new creation in Christ. And that's, what does it mean then to activate this power in our lives? What does it mean to, um, to live in the power of the Spirit? Well, I, I just think it's, it's not kind of... You don't have to super spiritualize it. Actually, it's really simple. You just have to come to God and confess and repent recognizing that you know, once again, your heart has drifted back to an old idol that you've that once again fallen into a pattern of sin, surrender it to him, uh, turn away from it, that's what repentance literally means, and then ask his spirit to fill you again, to take control and to make, him, to make you more like his son. Actually, there's such a power in coming to God and asking him to fill you with with his spirit and to change you and to make you more like him, to ultimately to become more like the child of God that he's made you to be. As we embrace this life in the spirit, as we embrace the freedom from sin that Jesus brings, I believe we'll see transformation in our lives. And this man is a model for that transformation. Now, I'm not suggesting that it will always look as immediate or as life-changing as this man's experience, but I do think that Christians are transformation people, that we should walk with Jesus expecting as we walk with him that he will slowly be changing us, that he'll be sanctifying us from one degree of glory to another. That's why it says in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's a command there because it's an expectation. That's part of our lives. We shouldn't kind of shrink back from that possibility just because we're battling with sin, just because we're experiencing failure, that we shouldn't rem- kind of forget the promise that actually Jesus is changing us to become more like him. And I think it can look major transformation. I've got an example. One of my friends, uh, Jamie, I might have mentioned him before, but he's uh, he became a Christian in prison. Basically, one night he just felt God speak to him, and he said, and felt God asking the question, "If you die tonight, where are you going?" And he knew the answer was hell, and so he said, um, so he turned his life over to Jesus. And this man had been in prison five times. He'd been spent most of his teenage years robbing um, motorbikes. and, you know, he'd been in gangs and everything. His life, you know, he describes now, later, he'd say those guys ruined his life, if that makes sense. They ruined his sense of self-esteem. They, they kind of destroyed him in certain ways inside, internally. But actually, as he, when he became a Christian in prison, actually his life was utterly transformed over a number of years. If you met him now, you would have no... You wouldn't know those things. You'd hardly even actually... Not believe those things. He's a family man, he's got two kids, he's a great father, great husband, he works really hard, he's got his own glazing business, um, putting up windows. His life is utterly transformed, and he's a picture of the transformation that I believe is on offer as we follow Jesus. But or it can look a little bit more minor. So I, I, my, in my um, life most recently, I uh, probably about December, uh, November time, I was with my accountability partners, with the kind of prayer triplet I do, and I just realised that I had a bit of a pattern of getting angry with my colleagues. Like, it wasn't just, like, once or twice. Like, I saw, like, a, re- a repetitive pattern of, in some ways, being, like, um, unreasonable, like, being un- like, expecting, maybe not expecting too much, but just getting annoyed when people didn't meet, meet what I asked them to do. And so I was, I was really shocked. I thought, actually, if I'm, a, if I'm a manager here, if I'm a leader in this organisation, I want to model Christ, and, I, and that's not modelling him. And so I, I confessed, I repented of it, asked Jesus for his power his Holy Spirit to change me. And, you know, actually I started to understand a little bit more about where that was coming from. What I was doing was I was putting the, the kind of business goals above the welfare of the people who I worked with and saying that these are more important than how, you, how you're doing and how you're feeling. And so as I was doing that, and I just started to, to ask Jesus to change me and was consciously aware of that, asking him to fill me with the spirit and to, to put that to death. I, over the last six to nine months, I've seen a real change. You know, I'm not saying that I've never got been kind of short with people or whatever, but I've really seen um, God changing me and making me a more loving and compassionate manager and learning to put people's welfare above the, the overall business goals. So this transformation brings glory to God. This transformation is, um, is a powerful thing and is something we should expect and hope for, pray for in our lives. But also I think it's a fantastic witness of God's power to the world around us. And we see this in this story when, when Jesus instructs the demon-possessed man. He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. I think actually this man is almost like a pattern for us that as we seek Um, to conform our lives to Jesus, as we experience him transforming us and changing us and becoming more like him, actually we too, that command is for us too. That command is for us to go and tell people what the Lord has done in our lives. As we're being changed both individually and as a community, I believe that's one of the most powerful witnesses to the city that we live in. And I think a few things on this. First thing is it's not just coming to faith. Sometimes we think about telling people what the Lord has done. We think really that what that means is telling people about how we became a Christian. But actually, See how much the Lord has done for you is much bigger than that. It's actually see what the Lord is doing right now. Go into work and say, actually, I had a really lovely time with God this morning. I feel so peaceful, so, so ready to approach the day. So I, I was really worrying about this and I just learned to hand this over to God and I, I feel so much better. I mean, it's those day-to-day droplets of witness that people see in your life. They see you appropriating God's power and walking in step with the Spirit as they see him changing you. That is powerful. And that, those little moments, a little. You know, I, I think I've told some of you guys. I told I told some of my colleagues that. Um, you know, they kind of got used to seeing me when I when I was stressed or something. I'd go off and pray about it and come back, and they said oh, I could really see that made a difference for you. And one colleague turned to me and said, I've really I've started to meditate now as a result of you praying. Uh, and I was saying, okay, you're getting just the right direction, uh, not not quite there, but but yeah, that was. That, I, I thought that was really interesting that he saw that and wanted to emulate that. Um, or you might just say, look, you know, it might be that you're dealing really well. You're going through a really hard time. Something really ha- bad's happened in your life. And actually the way you deal with that, the way you walk through that and things don't collapse around you actually can speak really voluminous to the people, to the people around you. It could be character change. It could be like, like in my experience where they see Jesus changing your character our culture is crying out for character change. It's crying out for, for, to be able to conquer its, its kind of worst demons, so to speak, and, and to be able to like, live better. And actually, we've got, like, I'm not saying, like, you're going to sell it on, like, I've got the power, guys, come and accept the power, because we're actually calling people to Jesus, not just a, a power. But I do think they can see Jesus' power at work in your life. Or peace. They can see, actually, we're going through a difficult time, they can see that you're not anxious about that. Um, maybe you're doing exams and they say, actually, I can really see that you, 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 you seem different to everyone else because you're trusting God with that. Actually, I think there's even a communal element to this. I think actually it's a big part of um, the witness of the church, the body of Christ in this culture is how we are different as a community to the people around us. And some of the distinctive, some of the ways we love each other, some of the ways we operate as a community together will be some of the most attractive things to people when they see the community. And what they're really seeing is the power of God at work in this family. And that is a beautiful thing. Actually, I think that's something that historically, throughout the ages, the church has, has been really, um, there have been moments when that's been really good and really powerful, and equally there's been moments where the church has really ruined its witness by, by not experiencing that. Um, I just wanted to share with you a quote from Justin Martyr, who was, believe it or not, from AD 100 to 165. That was when he, was, he lived. So really soon after Jesus and his disciples. And he just got a little glimpse of how, how Jesus was changing this early church. Uh, he describes the community. We who used to value the acquisition, and wealth of the, the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. Just think about how powerful that communal witness is when people see Jesus at work, His power at work in the community. And so, I guess I want to ask the question: What will they say about grace? What will they say about this family as, they, as an outsider comes in and say, "Wow, there's something really different about that community." as they see a transformed people, as they see a distinctive people, they will see, I believe, the power of Jesus at work in us. And ultimately, we, have the, we worship the same God, as the, um, we worship Jesus, the same Jesus, who destroyed the power of evil and sin in this man's life. We know that we're no longer slaves to sin. We have a new freedom from sin, and we have the power to change. And as we're changed, the world will witness that. So what's then, what's our response to this? How do we respond to this? This, this truth, this story of power and transformation in this man's life. I'll well, say so if you're a Christian here, then I, I suppose the most obvious one is to embrace the power that Jesus has over sin and evil in your life. Believe again what is possible in the power of the Holy Spirit. If there are sins that you've been battling with, if there are fields that where you feel defeated, actually I want you to believe and to trust him again that his power is sufficient in your weakness power sufficient for the sins that you're battling with i want to invite you as we as in a moment to confess and repent to turn around and to ask him for a new power um new fill filling of his holy spirit to overcome sin and that's not something we're going to do once it's something that we do all the time we ever, on a daily basis on a moment by moment basis we're appropriating the power of the spirit to put to death the flesh and as you're changed as you experience transformation the power of the holy spirit i want to encourage you to tell people that story to go and tell the world of what the Lord has done for you. So that's if you're, if you're, like, if you're like the demon-possessed man after he's, been, he's, he's experienced this transformation. But what about if you're before? What about if you say, actually, no, I haven't experienced this transformation. I'm not, a, I'm not a follower of Jesus. Actually, then I want you to just remind you that, that Jesus is offering you this freedom too. Actually, he's, he's got a calling for you to be set free, that sin is robbing you from the, uh, the good things that God intends for you. Sin, in some ways, is controlling you. And actually, evil and sin doesn't want the best for you. Evil and sin doesn't love you. Actually, Jesus is calling you to lay that down and to turn to follow him, to make him Lord of your life. So I want to encourage you and want to invite you now to embrace him, to come to Jesus, and to receive the freedom that he brings and to worship him, the freedom from sin and the freedom to worship him and to enjoy him forever, for eternity. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray basically both, something of both those prayers. So if, if that's your, if that's your um, place, either basically I want you to join in with one of those two prayers. Do you guys want to come up as well? Next. Yeah, Father, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the one who brings total freedom. So we just come to you, first of all, as, um, as people who know you. We want to say, Lord, we want you to have your way in our lives. We want to be done with sin. We want to have, uh, experience a fresh freedom from sin again. We want to trust you for that freedom that you bring. We want, to t- we want to confess that we have not lived like that. We've not lived believing in your power. Instead, we want to turn to you and ask you to have control of our lives again. Just ask, Lord, that we would trust you for that power that you have over evil and sin in our lives, that we're not trapped in sin, we just embrace that. We embrace your loving, fatherly care for us. We turn those sins over to you, Lord Jesus. I just, um, If you're not a Christian now and you, and you hear this call that Jesus makes to you, I want to invite you to pray with me now. Jesus, we want you to have first place in our life. We want to have freedom from sin. We want to obey you and worship you. We want to thank you for your forgiveness. I want to ask that you would have control in our,
0: in our lives, in my life. Amen.